Well, we're thrilled to have all the moms with us today, all the ladies with us today, and uh, we're going to continue our series, The Thread, preaching through the Bible so you have a clear explanation you can offer to someone who asks us, it makes sense of the Bible for me. Uh, but in honor of Mother's Day, we're picking two heroes that aren't quite in historical order in Scripture, but it fits. Uh, the first week we started the series, we talked about creation gets flooded, had hand motions with that. Last weekend we had a quiz and we talked about the family's path to the promised land. Uh, this week our theme uh, for the weekend is that God uses women in the thread. And under the idea that God uses women in the thread, we're going to look at two women who are heroes for us in Scripture. And uh, you can follow along if you have the CLC app if you want to follow uh, the points. And this week, there are no hand motions to give you a break. There is a quiz, but you can stay seated for it. Uh, and the quiz that I'd like to give you is I'm going to ask you a question. It's actually a, a game I made up with our kids when I would drive them back and forth to school on my days off. And they loved it so much that a few years ago, I turned it into a book. And parents and grandparents are like, love it. My admin says it was her eight-year-old granddaughter's favorite Christmas present. Uh, we're not selling them today, but you can get them on Amazon. Uh, but it's called Who Am I? And there are over 70 Bible characters in here. And uh, there are seven questions that you can ask your kids, who am I? And they guess. And then there's about me, so you can actually teach them something about the person. And then most families struggle with actually how do you talk about the Bible? So there are conversation points. And then finally, a color, color, coloring area for that uh, character. So here's the question. If you know the answer, don't blurt it out, Okay. Just be quiet. I'll ask you to raise your hands, okay? So don't ruin it for everybody. Question number one. I lived during the time when judges ruled over Israel. Sadly, about, after about 10 years of marriage, my husband, brother-in-law, and father-in-law all died. My mother-in-law's name was Naomi. Who am I? How many of you know? Okay, who is it? All right, very good. Ruth. Uh, the other one. My original Jewish name was Hadassah. Both my parents died when I was a young child, so my uncle Mordecai raised me like his own daughter. Who am I? How do you know? Okay, who is it? Esther. Esther. Very good. And so that book is full of opportunities like that if you want to pick that up on Amazon. But uh, today, in honor of Mother's Day, when you leave today, and I'm told, hey, whoever decided the gift, great job. Uh, ladies, we have for all the ladies here an Esther Price candy bar when you leave. And we thought of it too late, since we're talking about Esther and Ruth, too late in the week, we thought, wouldn't it be cool to give out baby Ruth and Esther candy bars? But <laughs> you have to get the baby Ruth on your own, all right? But we're going to dive into uh, looking at these two ladies' lives, a couple of amazing women. And uh, if you understand Scripture, women are highly valued in the Old and New Testament, especially when you understand the cultures that they were uh, set against, the, the historical background. The Bible honors women like no other ancient faith. The first point I want to talk about is, is divine care. And we talk about God's divine care, we're going to look at it in the mess and in the mundane. And certainly this is true of a woman like Ruth. Let me read for you the start of the story of Ruth in chapter 1, the first five verses. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. If you notice a trend, but when Abraham accepted the call of God to go to the promised land, when he got to the land God promised, there was a famine there. We identified that there are problems with the promise, but pursue the promise anyway. Here we are now, years later, and once again, there is a famine again in the land. And so even in the best of God's plans for you, there are going to be obstacles and difficulties. It does not mean that God isn't with you. 
A certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. He's looking for relief uh, for the famine. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, what in the world is an Ephrathite, right? Well, Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel, if you remember, had 12 sons. One of those 12 sons was Ephraim, and so those 12 sons were the heads of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, and when they went into the Promised Land, they settled 12 states, if you will. One was the state of Ephraim, if you're from there, like you're an Ohioan, well, you, they were Ephraites. Now, they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah. Side note, years ago, I often do a series called What Would Jesus Say To? And then we pick personalities of modern day. And one year I did a sermon, What Would Jesus Say to Oprah Winfrey? And Oprah, actually, her name was intended to be Orpah, named after this woman, but they had a spelling error on the birth certificate, so her name is Oprah. Fact check it, it's true. <laughs> so, uh, and the names of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Shilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Can you imagine her grief? She loses her husband, loses her two sons. And not just grief, but panic. Because in ancient times, there was no welfare system to turn to. There was no Social Security. There were no life insurance policies. When you lost your husband as a woman, you were in severe economic danger and danger from society being taken advantage of. You would fall back on your sons, and their families would take you into their household, and now she's lost both of her sons. So Naomi is in extreme danger. Add to that the fact that, that she has her two daughters-in-law, and uh, she goes to her daughters-in-law and says, listen, you're young, go back to your homeland, find husbands, and start over with your families. One does, Orpah does, but Ruth refuses that and says, no, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I am, I am bound to you for life. So when she realized she couldn't convince her otherwise, Ruth goes with Naomi. They head back to Bethlehem. Hope that sounds familiar. Save that for later. And uh, we find that uh, now what do we do? Well, in Ruth uh, chapter 2, verse 1, says, now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, one of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Now let's make sense out of that. We don't talk about gleaning nowadays. But in ancient times, if you were a wealthy landowner and had a compassionate heart, what you would tell your servants when they harvested the crops was, well, don't take quite everything. Around the edges and the corners of the field, leave some extra grain or corn, whatever it was, the crop would be. Leave some excess there so that poor people, the peasants, can come and they can glean. They can take from the edge of the field and they can at least have something to live on. So I don't know, most of us try to instill within our kids to set high and dream big dreams and, and do great things and accomplish whatever. And Ruth sets her sights on this. She, she's realized she's already a migrant worker in Bethlehem and she sets her sight, I hope I can find someone who has a field that they will at least let me be a scavenger, if you will, and glean leftovers from the harvest. That's her goal. And so with that set, we have the story of Ruth set in motion. 
Now let me tell you how that story goes forward because when you look at that, first of all, we, it starts out life is a mess. It's tragic. Never expecting to lose your, your husband, your, your father-in-law, all at once. And, and that's Ruth's lot. That's Naomi's lot. If I were to ask for a show of hands, some of you, in fact, how many of you are either in a mess right now or you've been through a mess sometime in your life? Let me see your hands. It's universal. Life happens like that. On top of that, I mean, how mundane does it get? Your, your responsibility, your goal every day is to find a field that you can scavenge some grain or some crops from, and that's what you do for a living. Talk about mundane. But the reality is when you look at the book of Ruth, in fact, when you study, it's only four chapters long, there are no, like, big miracles. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no walking on water. There's no fire from heaven. There's none of that. Nothing miraculous. And it's also got a big mess to it. That's a lot like our lives. Most of our lives are mundane. Ruth would have nothing to post on social media. And you know, studies show you might be one of those people that's smart enough to get off social media. I'm not yet, but you know, the more time you spend on social media, maybe that's why I'm not too hurt by it. I don't spend a lot of time there. The more time you spend on social media, it tends to make people feel more insecure and more depressed the longer they're there. As one of my friends called one form of social media, fake book, okay? You know, when you go on social media, everybody has like a better vacation, a nicer house, better food, a nicer family. They're all better looking. I mean, life is just wow for them. It's just one big wow after another coming up roses. And so when you look at all that, it's like, oh, my life. You know, you try to spruce up something and make it special. Well, Ruth, nothing to post. Nothing to brag about. Another exciting day out in the fields. Emoji. Truth be known, most of your life is mundane. Most of mine is. Most of its details, most of its same old, same old, did it yesterday, what, I, what I'm going to do tomorrow, I did a lot of it last week, same thing. What I'm going to do the rest of the week, I did a lot of it day after day after day. It's just the way life is. But one of the things we learned from Ruth is that to trust in the behind-the-scenes arranging of a supernatural God her life is a mess, Ruth and Naomi both. It's hopeless. But let me ask a question. How many of you believe that God is both infinite and all-powerful and all-wise and can do whatever he chooses? Let me see your hand. How many of you think that you are as intelligent and all-wise and all-knowing as God is? Don't raise your hand. Okay? <laughs> so could it surmise? How many of you believe it's, it's possible that God is up to some things that you're not aware of about your life? Can I see? Raise your hand. So you don't know everything God's doing. So many, too many times we fall into despair, uh, frustration, anger, where is God? Because we act like, well, whatever God must be doing with my son, with my daughter, with my husband, with my kids, with my life, with my job, whatever he's doing, I must know about it. And since I don't know about it, then I'm frustrated. Where is God? And the reality is you need to trust in the fact that there is a God who is doing things behind the scenes and he's supernatural. You know nothing about it. That was what the case with Ruth. Because long story short, what happens, it's only four chapters long. Let me summarize it. Uh, Boaz, uh, in fact, I read, uh, yeah, verse 2, okay. Where Boaz is the son of, hang on, jump ahead of myself. Boaz is a wealthy landowner. And in ancient times, if you were a relative of a widow, 
you were obligated to take that widow into your home so that her posterity could continue through you. And so Boaz goes to the, the city fathers and says, hey, there is this woman and I want to take her into my home uh, and I'll buy his land and so that there's a posterity for her and his lineage. And so Boaz does exactly that. And so he pays the dowry for Ruth. And, uh, you know, we don't talk too much about dowries. We don't pay them in our culture. Interesting, last weekend we had uh, Steve and Lindelway here from Eswatini, some of our partners in Africa. They're involved there. And they're recently married. Uh, I think they're celebrating their second anniversary while they were here. He was frustrated. He wanted to get married earlier, but he was saving up. They have to pay a dowry there in Africa. He had to save up the dowry to pay 18 cows to his father-in-law. How does it be worth 18 cows, lady? ladies? All right. But that's what he had to save up. And so he finally got the cows, and he could make the purchase, and they got married. Well, what's amazing is that, uh, so Ruth becomes part of the, f the family, Naomi becomes drafted into the family, and uh, Ruth then has a baby. And Ruth has this baby, and we pick up the very end of the story, Naomi, the grandmother, uh, is watching the baby. And it says in Ruth 4.14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now when you look at that, here you have Ruth, this immigrant, migrant worker who's been displaced, but she pledged herself in loyalty to Naomi, and God works behind the scenes of the mess and the mundane, and she marries Boaz, and in that she becomes uh, the mother of this child, and Naomi, who thought all was lost, becomes the great-great-grandmother to David the king. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty cool, significant turn of events. Here is Naomi. She's the great-great-grandmother of King David. And then what about Ruth and her life? Ruth is only mentioned in those four chapters, and then it's silent. The Bible is silent for over a thousand years. Does not mention her again until the first chapter of Matthew, the first chapter of the New Testament. And in the New Testament, the first chapter of Matthew, when we get there this time, hopefully you won't skim past it because most people, when they read through the Bible, when they get to Matthew chapter 1, they skip to, I don't know, what is it, about verse 18 or so? Because the first several verses are so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. It's a family tree. It's Ancestry.com, New Testament version. But now when you get there and you realize that Ruth is mentioned in the family tree of who? Of Jesus Christ himself. Never underestimate what God might be doing behind the scenes of your life of which you have no idea and know nothing about. Trust God in the mundane. Trust God in the mess. Trust God for the future. And with that, I want to look at our second personality, our second lady that's a hero, and it's Esther. And uh, back when we celebrated 50 years of, of our, our anniversary as a church, uh, we did the series, Your Best is Yet to Come, and in the sermon book that I wrote, uh, there's a little history. Because we looked at heroes in the Bible, Esther was one of them, 
and it says that Jewish people had been living as conquered exiles for centuries, first by the Babylonians, then when Persia conquered Babylon, by the Persians. They lived at the mercy of warrior empires. Esther, also known as Hadassah, was a Jewish orphan. Esther inspires anyone, especially any woman, to not let, quote, the way things have always been, not let it dictate the way things will be. And so I want to suggest to you that if you feel like uh, your past holds you back, we talked about that some last week, your reputation, what you think of yourself, what other people think of yourself is, is too restrictive for you. Uh, the next point encourages you ladies especially, live beyond your history and your current insecurity. And right when I say that, there is a twinge in many of us, most of us, and ladies, you'll probably acknowledge that, of what you're insecure about. And you get defensive about it, you want to protect it, yet there's that uh, feeling inside of you. And your current insecurity often came from somewhere in your history. Maybe it was distant history, the way parents treated you or family treated you or siblings. Maybe it was the way you were treated in school or bullied or whatnot, or there was some failure or attitudes or rejection or whatever, but, but it just never measuring up, not meeting the standard, whatever. And there are, your past and your current insecurity can hold you back from even imagining what God has for you. I would encourage you to shake that off. And we need examples, role models. Ladies, point your children, point your daughters to, to Esther. Let me give you a brief intro to the book before we jump to chapter 2. There is the Persian king. Uh, there's the name in the Bible, but his name in history is Xerxes. So I'm going to go with Xerxes. It's easier to pronounce. Xerxes is having a party, and it's men only in this party. It's a big, uh, wild banquet and whatnot. And while he's having his party, uh, his queen Vashti at the time is having her party. It's a women-only party. And Xerxes decides, and he says, hey, I want Vashti, who evidently was gorgeous, I want Vashti to come and dance for the boys. Right? You can imagine how degrading that would probably end up being. Uh, a drunken crowd of uh, ancient uh, Middle Eastern men who were friends of the king. And so Vashti must have purposed in her heart, I hate it when he has me come and I feel so degraded. I'm not. The next time he asks me, I am putting my foot down. I am not doing it. Great example if you want to teach your kids how to say no when it's tough. Vashti says that she refuses to go and dance for the king and his buddies. Now, I'd love to tell you that it all worked out great, but sometimes when you do the right thing, you pay the consequence anyway. And sure enough, Vashti said, no, I refuse it. I'm going to respect myself more than that. And so she was dethroned and no longer queen. The Bible does say that, that Xerxes kind of regretted having done that, but he couldn't go back on it. And uh, so Xerxes is encouraged by his uh, advisors uh, to go ahead and go in search of a new queen. So uh, let's pick up the story in Esther chapter 2, verse 5. So now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So there again, we have a situation in which we have 
a girl who was a Jewish exile with a defeated past that you don't talk about. As we dig further in the story, we'll find that's exactly true. Esther didn't want to tell anybody that she was a Jew. I mean, they're defeated by the Babylonians and now the Persians. How humiliating is that? They're living as slaves if they're found out, and so she just keeps that secret to herself. Have you ever had a root of shame or a, or a shameful, embarrassing secret? And you try to keep that? And they might not see it on the outside, but you feel on the inside every interaction you have, you feel like you're the fraud, you're posing, and they, you're, you're afraid for sure they're seeing through that. That's what Esther had to live with. And so uh, as, as the king goes in search, the next point identifies live out the purpose that God has in your struggles and your blessings. The king goes on this search, and sure enough, he chooses Esther to be his queen. Whoa, how amazing is that? She still didn't, the king didn't even know she was a Jew. She was brought to him through whatever means. And, and if you want to read it, ladies, they had a year of spa treatment before they would go and be presented to the king as a possible spouse. And it talks about all the cosmetics they were given. I mean, read it, it's, it's legit. So if you want to justify your cosmetics budget, go to Esther, all right? <laughs> And so she is the finest woman of the land, and so she's chosen as queen. And before we see the purpose that God had for her, let me read for you a verse about purpose, because it's not just, just Esther and somebody who lived thousands of years ago that God has purpose for. If you're a Christ follower, there's a purpose for you. The Bible, we love to read Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. You didn't earn that not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Say for good works. Which God prepared. Say God prepared. God prepared it beforehand so that we would walk in them. Sorry, one more time. Say walk in them. So if you're a Christian, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, God says, great, I have things I want you to do. I've, I've fashioned them just for you. I want you to do it in your world, your constellation of relationships and where you work, where you go to school, your kids, your family, whatever. All of that, you're the only one in the middle of that, and I have things I want you to do. I have a purpose for you. Every person in here, there's a purpose God wants you to fulfill. So hold that thought. And now let's jump back to the story of Esther. So... Esther becomes queen, and while she is queen, Uncle Mordecai is, he's in a favor, he's an extended family, so he's in a favored position. Mordecai learns and exposes that there is an assassination plot against the king. He tells Esther, he's got an immediate connection to the throne. Esther tells Xerxes, hey, this assassination plot's going on. Xerxes checks into it, it's true, the people are taken care of, and he makes a note in the king's record, by the way, this guy Mordecai is a good guy. There's another guy named Haman who is always buttering the king up and trying to get next to the king, and he hates Mordecai and the Jews, so much so that Haman manipulates the, the legal legislative process, and he gets established Jewish genocide laws. The genocide law is such that on the 13th day of the 12th month, so make it our December 13th, everyone is encouraged to destroy the Jews women and children, young and old, and after you have killed them, plunder their possessions. You see the incentive there? 
So for every Jewish family you get rid of and exterminate, you can take their stuff. Man, they were like ready to go. It would be instant genocide and destroy the Jewish nation. Keep in mind, the king goes ahead and goes along with this law, decrees it, and he doesn't know that his beautiful Esther is a Jew because she's told no one. She's kept that secret all those years. Mordecai calls her out. Mordecai says to her, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Famous question. Whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this. Esther, this may be your hour. This may be the crowning purpose for why God chose you. So today's date is what? May, May 8th. Not your question. Say May 8th. May 8th. Say 2022. 2022. I would suggest to you that May 8th, 2022, where you live, where you work, your family, your relationships, everything about you, God has placed you there, blessed you there through the hardship and the blessings. He has got you there for such a time as this. Now. Now is your time. What purpose does God have for you, big and small? It may be the mundane, live out your purpose for him. It may be in something big, live out your purpose for him. It may be in choices with huge consequence, make the godly choice and live out your purpose for him. It may be in the small, everyday purpose, moms, when you get up in the morning and fix those kids' breakfast and get them off to school or start schooling yourself. There is a purpose that God has for you. You are here. You are in your life for such a time as this. Esther's got a huge choice to make because she could go into the king. And understand, in those days, it wasn't like, hey, honey, I got something to tell you. She wasn't even allowed to go into the king's presence unless the king acknowledged her and extended his scepter to her, and then she would touch the scepter and kind of bow to the king and then have permission to come in. So it's different. Esther realizes the call, musters up the courage. In verse 15, it says, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way and obviously pray. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. I'm breaking the law by even talking to him. And if I perish, I perish. I will do the right thing thing because it's the right thing. Integrity on display. The highest of stakes. And this woman, this young woman, teaches it to us. I'm not going to tell you the story, but you've got to read the next several chapters. This is one cunning woman. She doesn't just go in and say, honey, I've got to tell you that I'm a Jew. Oh, I didn't tell you that. <laughs> Need to overturn the law. No. She sets up this banquet. She invites Xerxes and Haman to the banquet. Of course, Haman, that's just stoking his ego. I get to go have dinner with the king and the queen, right? And so she sets up this situation in the first banquet, and then I want you to come to a second banquet. I get to go with the queen and king again. The second banquet. And all the while, she's turning the tables, and the second banquet ends up framing Haman and showing what he's done and exposing his plot against the Jews. By the way, honey, I am a Jew. And Haman ends up being hanged on the gallows that he made to hang Mordecai on. But there's this amazing twist of fate that God orchestrated through this obedient, character-driven woman. It's an incredible story of heroism. 
all done by this young woman and the courage that she had. She is then elevated to a place of, wow, she's, got, she's not just a queen with a beautiful form and face, as the Bible says. She, she's got some clout. And so it says in Esther 9.32, the command of, of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. What's that about? She not only turned the tables, had that law struck down and, and destroyed, she then has a law written that, and from now on, we're going to commemorate the potential massacre of the Jews that did not happen, and we're going to do this year after year in, you know, in, into the future to celebrate called the Feast of Purim. That's clout. Shapes an empire. And then Mordecai, it says, Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Xerxes, uh, the great among the Jews, and in favor with many of his kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. And in there, I want to take a brief detour from Mother's Day, but look at Mordecai and look at Esther as people who are a godly, an example of godly people engaged in the legal process and having legal influence. Esther established a national holiday and wrote protective laws into existence, as did Mordecai. And there is a time and a place for godly people to have legal influence when it's afforded to them. And I want to take a moment and jump back to Wednesday night. If you weren't here, most of you weren't here Wednesday night. I don't know why. You missed an amazing prayer time. Um, but I felt Wednesday night, in addition to teaching us how to pray, last week we talked about leaving Egypt behind. There are definite prayer steps you take to do that, and so we did a deep dive in that. But I also felt a need to address what had just broken uh, early last week, uh, and that is that it was a preliminary uh, release, which is concerning, uh, from a Supreme Court decision that it appears the Supreme Court is prepared to strike down Roe v. Wade. Now, let me just give you some response to that because it's a great example of what happened here with Esther and Mordecai. They godly, well, I'm not sure how, if they're godly or not, but involved in the legal process. First of all, um, to those of you that are under 49, you can't imagine a universe without Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was not legal until I was a junior in high school, so I can. And the Supreme Court, first of all, did not make a moral decision and strike down abortion. We don't think it's right, so it's no longer going to be part of the United States. What they're doing is a constitutional decision. It's, le it's a legally driven decision. And they are saying that rights defined in the Constitution are governed by the Constitution. And so the different amendments and whatnot that are found there, the Constitution and the Supreme Court protects those. But what they are apparently deciding is that abortion is not clearly defined in the Constitution, so it is not legally appropriate. In fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg even warned about the, the weak legal ground that Roe v. Wade was on years ago, that the Constitution does not defend specifically the right to abortion, so abortion should not be decided at a national level. It should be pushed back to the states, and each state will decide if they are pro-abortion or against abortion. And so there is now, if that goes forward, going to be a huge legal debate, a huge media firestorm over that. And I would imagine when it finally settles, there'll probably be 30 states in favor of abortion, 20 states against, or something like that. As far as a biblical response to that, and I'm, I'll welcome anybody who wants to take me on in this or have a conversation about it. Um, I'll, I'll be eager to hear your chapter and verse. Let me give you a... I believe as Christians we have to have a chapter and verse approach to life. And so let me just share with you some perspectives that the Bible says. And first of all, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, 
says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Stepping out of the Supreme Court decision currently, I believe that abortion is unrighteousness. And the fact that it would be uncoupled from being a national mandate is at least a step in a correct biblical direction. Another verse, Psalm 127, verse 3, I often mention during baby dedications, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. I dedicated twin gifts this morning from the Lord. Prayed for, longed for, along with three other sibling gifts. I referenced Wednesday night, I'm not today, but last week I talked about uh, Jacob and Esau, twins in their mother's womb. Whenever a mother's womb is referenced, when she's pregnant, they are always referenced as children. It's a child inside of a pregnant mom. Not a product of conception, a child from the moment of conception. So a biblical worldview holds in the womb to be children. And then there's a huge misnomer. There's other verses I mentioned Wednesday, but there's a huge misnomer in our culture, and I've seen it already in the placards, my body, my choice. If you say that, I guess that's your worldview, but you cannot say that and, and say I have a biblical worldview because biblically that is not true. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So if I hold to this book, Amen. this is not mine. Amen. For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And so my prayer is that that decision is sustained and that at the very least we uncouple abortion. It's no longer a national right. I would pray that all 50 states vote against it, but that, I don't expect that to happen. But our responses need to be biblically based, seasoned with love, wisdom and grace, and I reminded us Wednesday that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We have, need loads of prayer because there will be a huge firestorm upon our nation. Sadly, we've aborted over 60 million babies. And that is a huge scar on the soul of our nation, and I pray that God restores that. And so that is an example uh, of how the legal process can be used for godly ends. And so while we take advantage of that when we can, you know, I, I said at the prayer breakfast uh, that I went to on the National Day of Prayer this week, you know, God didn't, Jesus didn't tell us to go into all the world and make Democrats or Republicans. He didn't say go into the world and make, and make Americans. He said make disciples. And so as followers of Christ, as followers of Christ, we keep our eyes on Jesus and we, we learn that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And it was to Esther, it was to Mordecai, it was to Ruth, and it is and shall be for us. And so today we want to close our message. I'm going to ask all the ladies to stand. We want to pray a special blessing, if you would, if you'd stand. I want to pray a special blessing for all of our moms. All the ladies, stand. That's it. And I have help uh, today in closing this message in a prayer from uh, my favorite lady. <laughs> well, happy Mother's Day. Let's pray. 
We pray a blessing over every mother here today. Bless each mom with wisdom. Lord, each child is created uniquely different. Give these moms wisdom in how to raise their children. Give them patience, God. Being a mom can be exhausting. From the time you bring a baby home, you're getting up in the middle of the night feeding them, to chasing toddlers, to running kids to school, to trying to teach your high schoolers just all the things about life, to saying goodbye at a college, dropping them off, to saying goodbye when they leave your home. Give them patience, God. Give these moms the ability to have unconditional love. You know, our kids make choices that we don't agree with. And while it's not our responsibility to stop the consequences, and we shouldn't, but the one thing that we should do is show our kids unconditional love. Give these moms health, whether it be physical health, emotional health, and spiritual health. Give these moms an ability to be good listeners, to know when it's time to zip it and not say anything, but grant them discernment to know when it is time to speak and what they should say to their kids, no matter what age or developmental phase they're in. Bless each and every mom here. With God's help, may each mom become the best version of herself, maximizing her potential in Christ. Let her faith be passed down to her children and her children's children and generations to come. We thank you for the opportunity of being a mom and let each of us be cheerleaders for our kids to be that safe place that they can come back home to, especially when they're grown and gone. We love you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joyce.